I want to start today's podcast by firstly thanking all of our listeners, whether you've been with us for one episode or you were here with us for the entire season one. The support that we received off the back of season one has been mind-blowing, to say the least. And for everyone that's reached out to us over the last couple of months, wondering when's the podcast coming back, please tell me that there's going to be a second season to the podcast. Here it is. The first episode came out last week. If you haven't already heard it, it is the very unfortunate telling of Gypsy Rose and Dee Dee Blanchard. For season two, I said, I want to make sure that all the stories I'm telling are so mind-blowing that the listeners finish the story and they question whether or not it's real. And I think the first episode, which is called I Killed My Mum and It Set Me Free, definitely sets the tone for season two. If you haven't already heard it, go back and listen to it. I guarantee you'll finish that story wondering, how is this at all possible? How is this a true story? Secondly, for our listeners, during season two, we'll be including episodes from a new podcast that we're working on called Savage True Crime. You'll be hearing an episode from Savage today. And if you listen to season one of Do You Want to Hear a Story, you'll agree that a lot of my stories definitely lean into the true crime genre without going all in. Savage True Crime goes all in. And the first episode, again, sets the tone. It's the very horrific story of a psychologically damaged man named Daniel LaPlante and the horrific crimes that he inflicted on two different families. It was another story that during the research, during the recording, it's it's hard to believe that something like this genuinely happened out in the world. So if you enjoyed season one, I have no doubt that you'll continue enjoying the podcast. We've got bigger and better stories. We've got Savage True Crime included. Again, thank you to everyone who took the time to listen last year. Thank you for everyone who took the time to subscribe. And thank you to everyone who took the time to reach out and support the podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's story and I look forward to bringing you season two. Do you want to hear a story? This episode of Savage True Crime is intended for adult audiences. The episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. This particular story discusses murder death and sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Today I'd like to tell you a story that over time has become somewhat of an urban myth. But I'd like to focus on just the facts and strip back the exaggerations. Now you may or may not be familiar with Daniel LaPlante. And you may or may not be familiar with what he's known for. The terrible thing is what he's known for is nothing in comparison to the horrific actions he took as a teenager. Born in 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts, Daniel's backstory serves as a piece of the puzzle that's in by no way a defense for his actions. As a young child, Daniel suffered severe psychological and sexual abuse at the hands of multiple adults in his life. His own father was the individual who administered majority of his son's punishments, tormenting him physically, emotionally, and sexually on a regular basis. His troubled childhood affected every aspect of his life. Struggles at school both socially and academically, combined with being diagnosed with dyslexia from an early age, 
It's not hard to imagine that Daniel had very few friends during his school days. Most of his classmates often referred to him as the creepy or the weird kid. And it was in his early teenage years that Daniel was referred by school officials to a psychiatrist, mainly stemming from general reluctance towards any type of self-improvement, any type of hygiene, and his overall appearance. Being referred to the psychiatrist could have been the positive turning point that Daniel needed. Unfortunately, though, for many in his world, this would do nothing but to reinforce the evil in Daniel's life. The psychiatrist diagnosed him with a hyperactive disorder, something that didn't obviously mesh well with his already declining mental state as a result of his troubled home and school life. His relationship with his psychiatrist eventually took a turn when the psychiatrist began to start sexually abusing Daniel. This went on for a whole year during their sessions, something that no doubt left a huge impact on Daniel's mental state. And like his father, this was another adult who he'd put his trust in. But instead, the psychiatrist did nothing but to add another layer of grief to his already painful existence. In his early teens, Daniel became well known to the local police as a small time thief. He spent his evenings breaking into people's properties in the towns and area, stealing their valuables. As his abilities as a thief increased, so did his desire to cause torment. By age 15, he was breaking into people's homes and not only taking their possessions, but also leaving behind items. He would also move items around in people's homes in such a way that it was clear that someone had been there, but not so much that it was immediately obvious. That could be something simple like turning a photo upside down, moving a lamp, something small just to say something's out of place. And eventually he was invading people's homes purely for the purposes of playing mind games with the owners. In 1986, at 16 years old, Daniel set in motion the series of events which he would become forever known for. After breaking into a house, the girl who went to the same school as him, finding her photo and becoming obsessed with her, he did some digging and he managed to get the family's phone number. This house belonged to a family of three, a father and his two daughters, Brian Andrews, 15-year-old Annie, and 8-year-old Jessica. At this point, the family were going through a rough period after the loss of Brian's wife and the girl's mother to cancer. And forced into single parenthood, Brian had to work more to support his family, meaning he was not at home as much as he would have liked to have been. And despite the age gap, Annie and Jessica got along well. Losing their mother had brought them closer together. Daniel began calling the house, and he got to work convincing Annie that he'd been given their number by a friend of a friend who went to the same school as them. He told her that he was a good-looking, athletic, blonde, well-educated boy who lived in the area. And the two spoke regularly over the phone for the next week or so. And Annie really enjoyed talking to Daniel. So when he asked her out on a date, she agreed. He would pick her up at her house and they would go to the local fair together. When the day arrived for the date, Annie was excited. The doorbell rang and she rushed to answer it. When she opened the door though, she was shocked to discover that the boy she'd been talking to was the total opposite to who he said he was. Instead of the athletic jock type boy she was expecting, her blind date was a dirty, greasy, dark haired boy with no attractive features whatsoever. Annie tried to hide her dismay. She still went on the date. 
but she got bad vibes from the moment she set eyes on the boy. And as they walked through the fair, Annie told Daniel about her family, mentioning the recent death of her mother from cancer. And it was as if the mention of death flicked a switch in Daniel's head. His eyes suddenly lit up and became extremely animated. He began questioning Annie about the death. Understandably, the quizzing from Danny about her dead mother, which included questions about how badly she'd suffered from the illness, made Annie extremely uncomfortable. At this point, Annie made excuses and returned home. From then, she cut all ties with Daniel, and she did not willingly see him again following the date. However, she would later discover that he'd been seeing her. One evening, Annie and her sister attempted, for whatever reason, to contact their deceased mother, performing a seance in their basement. They went down to the basement and they went about what they thought they were supposed to do during a seance. Candles, songs, chants. They weren't taking it very seriously, but I suppose it acted as a distraction and that's what they needed. When Brian, their father, came home from work, they ended it. They did not want him to know what they were up to, fearing that he would think they'd gone crazy. Later that evening, Jessica and Annie started hearing a knocking against their bedroom walls as they slept. Their first thought was the seance had worked. And in the dead of the night, the two girls spoke to the unseen force as if they were talking to their mother one more time. They asked the spirit questions to which it replied via knocks against the wall. It seemed at this point that the girls had truly uncovered a supernatural force at work. This continued for several nights, and as the knocking became more and more constant, things around the house started to change. Items went missing, items were thrown all over the place, pictures were removed from the walls. It really felt to the girls that something quite sinister was going on. They'd often come home from school to find furniture moved from one side of the room to the other. And eventually, they really did begin to believe that they were being haunted by a demon, not the spirit of their mother as they had originally believed. The girl's father, Brian, believed that this was the girls themselves who were causing havoc in their own home. They'd claimed to him that they believed they had unknowingly allowed a vengeful ghost to enter their home. But obviously, Brian refused to believe such a crazy story. Instead, Brian began to worry that his girls were really starting to struggle with the death of their mother. It was on one evening in January 1987 that the strange knocking had begun while Jessica and Annie were alone in their front room. At this point, the constant tapping had become such a commonplace occurrence that it was driving the girls to complete insanity. This particular evening, however, it seemed that the noises weren't coming from the walls. They were coming from below. They were coming from the basement. Convinced that someone was in the basement, the girls, armed with a kitchen knife, made their way down. And as they crept below their own home, they were greeted with something that they never expected. Written in what they first thought was blood on the basement wall was a message. I'm in your room. Come and find me. The girls fled the house without a second thought, running straight to the neighbor's home. They waited there for their father to return. 
and they tried to explain to him what they'd found. Brian again was worried that his daughters were responsible for this. And it was their way of somehow trying to cope with the passing of their mother. Brian began to organise for Jessica and Annie to begin counselling, to try and help them cope with what he believed to be the source of their struggling mental state. Several weeks later, a similar incident played out, but with even crazier results this time. Again, the girls hear the knocking sounds, but this time they came from behind Annie's bedroom wall. When the girls entered again, they were greeted with another message. Again, it looked like blood. It read, I'm back. Find me if you can. Again, running out of the house as fast as they possibly can. They bolt through the front door and run straight to their neighbor's house. The neighbor seeing them shaking with absolute fright, told them that they could once again wait for their father to get home. On the phone, Annie told Brian about how the tapping had begun again and more writing had appeared on the wall. Irritated, Brian told the girls that he would come home from work early. He still at this point believed that they were making the whole thing up. And somewhat similarly to the first time, Brian got home, placing the blame solely on Annie and Jessica. After collecting the girls from the neighbor's house, he marched straight into his home to prove that there was no one else inside. However, when Brian entered the house, he noticed that there'd been further disarray than what his neighbor and the girls had previously claimed. It was now that it became apparent that someone had been inside this house. Brian entered Annie's room alone. There, an additional message had been painted on the wall. Marry me. The writing on the walls, the knocking, the moving objects, they were not just products of his daughter's imaginations. These were not coping mechanisms. There was something else going on here. Opposite the painted wall, Brian was greeted with something I'm not sure that anyone would be able to prepare themselves for. A young man stood dressed in his deceased wife's clothes, wearing her makeup and her blonde wig. In one of his hands was a hatchet. At this point, I'm sure you've guessed, the young man was Daniel Laplante. A struggle broke out and Daniel somehow was able to escape. Brian tells the story that he was completely dumbfounded to find Daniel standing there, dressed in his dead wife's clothes, with a full face of makeup, and then instantly, without much effort, seemed to be able to disappear out of sight. When the police were called in to investigate later the same evening, they confirmed that the messages had been written in ketchup, and the police began to search the house for clues as to how Daniel may have been able to access the house in the first place. One of the officers found a hidden crawl space behind a cupboard, which was built into the wall of Annie's bedroom. When the officer opened up the hatch, he found Daniel Laplante curled up inside. The officers removed Daniel from the crawl space and placed him under arrest. And once he was removed from the scene, officers conducted a thorough search of the residence. To their absolute horror, they discovered that Daniel had been living inside the walls of that house. The passageway which they discovered Daniel in had been tunnelled around to other areas of the house. There was also a handful of peepholes dotted around so that Daniel could observe Annie 
from whichever room she was in. Now at the beginning of the story I said I want to focus on just the facts, but the reports vary on how long he'd been hiding in the house. Some say several days, while others say that it was as long as two months. They found a range of items in the crawl space, mostly rubbish at this point, but also a sleeping bag, food wrappers, drink, and articles of clothing. It obviously became clear that Daniel had been pretending to be the ghost of Annie and Jessica's mother in order to torment them, and it's believed that Daniel was planning on revealing himself to the girls whilst dressed as their dead mother. And the scary fact is he was wielding a hatchet at the time, so it also suggests that Annie and Jessica made a lucky escape that night. At the time that Daniel was removed from the home, he was still 16, and he was placed in a juvenile detention facility where he spent 10 months. He turned 17 on May 16th, 1987. And in October 1987, Daniel's case was transferred from juvenile court to adult court. The fact that he was being charged as an adult meant that he could post bail, which for some reason his mother helped him with. And very quickly he was free to leave the juvenile detention facility. From then Daniel was charged with four counts of kidnapping, four counts of armed assault in a dwelling, breaking and entering, larceny of more than $100, and malicious destruction of property. On December 11th, 1987, he was due to appear in the Superior Court. But unfortunately for others, this would not come. He had other plans. His stay at the juvenile detention facility did nothing to curb those evil ways. In November of that year, he broke into another neighbor's home. This time Daniel was not there to mess around, he was not there to play mind games. He was there for something particular. He stole two handguns. Of December 1st of 1987, 10 days before his Superior Court hearing, he broke into the Gustavuson family home around a half a mile from his own family house. There Daniel found Priscilla. She was 33 at the time, and her son Billy, who was five. Still on her way home from school was Abigail, who was seven. At the time, Priscilla's husband, Andrew, was at work. Priscilla was pregnant with her and Andrew's third baby at the time of the break-in. It's unknown why, but for whatever reason, Daniel had nothing but evil intentions on his mind. And at the start of the story, when I said that Daniel was known for something, that Daniel's story becomes somewhat of an urban myth. That urban myth was all about Daniel hiding out in someone's walls, knocking, pretending to be someone's dead mother. The horrific part of this story is what Daniel did when he broke into the Gustavusons. He wasted no time. He dragged Priscilla into her bedroom where he beat and raped her. He put a pillow over her head and shot her twice in the back of the head. He then took Billy upstairs where he drowned him in a bathtub. And when Abigail returned home from school, he did the same to her in the downstairs bathtub. When Andrew arrived home to the horrendous scene, he called the police. He sat frozen in the bedroom where his wife lay and it was the police who found Billy and Abigail in the bathrooms. Not that it would change anything in the slightest, but it never became clear why the sick and twisted little fuck decided to do what he did that day. In addition, a handful of items which doubled as restraints were found in the Gustavuson household. This prompts the theory that Daniel forced his way into the residence and held his victims at gunpoint while he restrained them. He likely killed Priscilla first to remove the biggest threat. He then drowned Billy 
and he drowned Abigail when she got home from school. The small town of Townsend was reeling from the murders of the Gustavuson family. Nobody could really understand who would do something so evil. Detectives quickly put a list of potential suspects together, unsurprisingly given his previous crimes against the Andrews family and the fact that he'd just been released from juvenile detention. Daniel LaPlante made that list. And there were also some items which had been taken from the Gustavuson home, including a cable television box and a cordless phone. Daniel was obviously well known for robberies in the area. He was living with his mother and his stepfather at the time, less than a mile from the Gustavusons. The following day on December 2nd, police questioned Daniel finding him at the Townsend Public Library. He quickly denied any involvement in the murders, telling police that he'd been at home watching TV for most of the day. Other than their suspicions, they had no hard evidence linking Daniel to the murders just yet. Later that day, police went to Daniel's family home to question him further. As they approached the home, Daniel, who was standing on the front porch, turned and ran into the woods that surrounded the house. It became very obvious very quickly that he had something to hide. And when they searched the home, they found a number of incriminating pieces of evidence. Daniel was considered to be armed and incredibly dangerous, and given his history, there was no telling what he might do at this point. On the run, Daniel was not particularly careful to stay under the radar. He took a woman at gunpoint and forced her to drive him around in her van. Luckily, that woman managed to escape, and she called the police and reported what happened. At this point, Daniel's now driving himself around in the van. He was spotted by someone who'd seen his photograph on the news. And 48 hours after the manhunt had begun, Daniel was discovered hiding in a dumpster. When he was arrested in the dumpster, a hair belonging to Abigail Gustavuson was discovered on his sock, cementing his involvement in her murder. He was arrested without incident, but police later said he was laughing hysterically. Even the seasoned police officers found scary. And while, so while searching his person, they discovered that he had a gun stuffed in his underwear. He was subsequently charged with the murders of Priscilla, Abigail and William Gustavuson. He received a range of other charges related to the crimes he'd committed while on the run from the police. These were on top of his charges for the crimes against the Andrews family. Daniel pled not guilty to all three murders, and his trial began in October 1988, almost a year after the murders. By now he was 18, he was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation, in which he was found to be fit to stand trial. And even though Daniel was a minor at the time of the murders, the judge had already ruled that he'd be tried as an adult. During the trial, the prosecution called over 50 witnesses, many of which were Daniel's own family members, testifying as to Daniel's mental state and his past behaviour. I think it's fair to say at this point, though, the case was pretty rock solid. Some of the evidence that the police had discovered was a 22 caliber bullet casing that was found at Daniel's home, which matched the two found in the Gustavuson's home. The gun used to shoot Priscilla was found by Daniel's stepfather in a glove compartment of a Jeep Cherokee that sat in the yard of the LaPlante's family home. A ballistics expert would testify at trial that the bullet casings found at the Gustavuson's home were a match to this gun. A pair of Converse sneakers were found which matched the prints in the flower bed at the Gustavuson home. A sock with saliva on it was found, which police believed had been used to gag Priscilla Gustavuson. 
The defense's case for Daniel never really stood a chance, but it definitely didn't help that throughout the entire trial, it was reported that Daniel came across extremely unlikable. He showed no remorse, and he had a constant smirk on his face. Everyone from the judge to the jury, the lawyers, including his own, all got bad vibes from him. Daniel's lawyer tried to use his childhood and the fact that he'd been abused sexually and psychologically by a number of different adults, including his father, his stepfather, and his therapist, as an excuse for his behavior. It only took five hours of deliberation by the jury, but Daniel was found guilty on all counts. And the judge sentenced him to three life sentences to be served consecutively, which I think is a really important point. These aren't concurrent life sentences. These are three separate life sentences being served one after the other. He's currently incarcerated in MCI Norfolk Prison in Norfolk, Massachusetts. Since his incarceration, Daniel LaPlante has shown little remorse for his actions. While he clearly suffers from an array of psychological disorders, Daniel continues to show that he's a broken individual. And from the years of 1988 to 2014, he's made several attempts to sue the courts for different violations of his rights. In one case, he claimed the prison system violated his religious rights as he was allegedly a practicing Satanist. Therefore, Daniel claimed that he required sufficient materials in order to carry out certain satanic rituals. All had been denied by prison officials. In 2017, a 46-year-old Daniel LaPlante appealed for a reduced sentence after the Supreme Court ruled that juveniles cannot be sentenced to life in prison without parole. At that point, he'd been in prison for 30 years and he'd hoped that his sentence could be changed so that he could serve his life sentences concurrently rather than consecutively. The family of Priscilla Gustavuson and the prosecution were firmly against Daniel's resentencing. Priscilla Gustavuson's sister, Christine Morgan, said, it's reliving the murders all over again. It's life-changing all over again. Daniel did stand up at the resentencing and apologised to the Gustavuson family, saying, I do not have the words to fully express my profound sorrow, but I am truly sorry for the harm that I've caused. From the very essence of who I am, from the depths of my soul, I am sorry. According to those in attendance, however, this apology felt nothing but insincere. Daniel was obviously just saying what he felt others wanted to hear. The Superior Court judge was unmoved, saying, Mr. LaPlante has not been rehabilitated. She formally resentenced Daniel to his original sentence, three life sentences to be served consecutively. He will have the opportunity for parole after 45 years in 2032.